Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Tuesday, February 21st. This week marks the one-year anniversary of Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine. We look back at the 12 months in the conflict and to the weeks and months ahead. We get some insight from Alexa Drachevich, professor of history at Western University. Do you park downtown? Well, if you do, you know parking in the core is very expensive. In fact, it costs more to park in Calgary than any other city in Canada and more than most cities in the U.S. as well. We take a look at the issue with Mason Lamb, commercial real estate expert with Jones Lang LaSalle. And finally, we catch up with wine and food journalist Malcolm Jolly, who's made his mission to promote what he believes is the most underrated grape varietal on earth. We hear Malcolm's thoughts on why we shouldn't shy away from pouring a glass of Chardonnay. February 24th, 2022, Russia launched a large-scale invasion of Ukraine. Now, shortly after, strikes were made and many Ukrainians were displaced. Now, as the war continues and we move forward past year one, our guest assistant professor of history at Western University, Alexa Drashevich, it says the call for peace hasn't ended. So good morning to you, Professor. Thank you for taking the time with us this morning. We appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me on. Well, let, let's break this down and uh, the latest, because, we, yes, we have been immersed in this over the past 12 months. Over the past handful of days or past couple of weeks, how would you uh, categorize where we're at in this conflict? So we're at a stage where we're probably entering the next phase. Uh, the belief is that Russia is in the process of starting an offensive. If not, it, uh, some, some have already stated that it has started the offensive. Uh, while Ukraine is starting to take on the new technology, the new weaponry that, uh, that the West has provided them, the Leopard tanks, the Abrams tanks, things like this, that will take time for them to get uh, trained on and to be competent with. And so, in theory, uh, we could be seeing in the next couple of months uh, some very pivotal days. Uh, that said, war is always hard to predict, and we've seen a number of very significant uh, moments, obviously a year ago, where uh, Ukraine was able to defend itself off, uh, with the initial invasion, and then uh, last summer where Ukraine started a significant offensive in liberating a lot of the territory. So uh, we could be seeing a very uh, pivotal moment in the next couple of months. Professor, we here in Calgary are getting and got a lot of snow over the past 24 hours or so. What is the weather like in Ukraine and does, who does that affect more? Uh, would it be the Russian troops or the Ukraine troops? So in, in this case, it's, it's one kind of a very similar weather. One of the big things is the, the cold that we've been experiencing uh, here in Canada. For, for me, where I'm in southern Ontario the last few weeks, I assume the same in, in Alberta. Uh, they've been also dealing with things like the cold, things like that. that that's more affecting actually the civilians more than anything as uh, Russia has been targeting, uh, for example, uh, power plants and energy infrastructure. For the military itself, generally speaking, um, there's not really a clear uh, benefit one way or another in the sense that both uh, the, the Ukrainians have shown an ability to uh, be able to still fight regardless of what the terrain is like, regardless of what the actual... Uh, temperature is, what the conditions are. The bigger issue is, is one, and this is one where there's sort of very limited information to, to suggest of how widespread this is, but there have been sort of reports that, for example, the Russians at, at different periods of time, especially the last few months, haven't been sent with proper gear. Uh, this suggests that then, therefore, colder weather, for example, would affect them a little bit more. Um, the issue now is, is that we're not sure really how well outfitted the Russians are because um, the, the reality is is that we sort of know more about their training and sort of their leadership than in terms of what they're actually being sort of showing up with, especially these new conscripts. We're talking current day, Professor, and of course, you know, maybe not having the right equipment and the training, but 
when we go back not 12 months but 13 months when we look at january of 2022 in these reports of up to 150,000 russian troops flanking the borders of ukraine in different points uh, and I want to play devil's advocate here. What went wrong for the Russians? Because uh, outside looking in, 150,000 troops, we know, and I think to a certain extent, we fear what the Russian military can do, uh, but what they didn't end up doing. What went wrong for the Russians? So a couple of things. I think one day, and they still this, this seems to still be their main uh, mode, is to throw as many troops as possible to a given region. It seems to still be their uh, primary uh, methodology. We're seeing that currently in how they're defending Donetsk, Luhansk. We're hearing about thousands of Russian troops potentially being killed daily, uh, and yet the Ukrainians are not able to actually uh, push forward. Going back to January 2020, uh, 2022, there's a couple of things. First off, the belief is that the military wasn't fully aware of what was really pl- being planned, that this was an invasion planned at the highest levels. Putin, a number of individuals sort of around him, potentially the highest military leaders. We are still sort of hearing reports of soldiers when they first invaded, uh, basically revealing how little they knew of the actual invasion. So that's one problem. Uh, the second is is that, to be blunt about it, is that um, the Russian sort of military in many ways sort of kind of, I think, assumed that they would be much, that one, they either bought into their propaganda, that they would be greeted as liberators, buying into what Putin has been saying about Ukraine being a brotherly nation and all of these things. While at the same time, I don't think they thought that the Ukrainians would be able to put up much of a defense. And the fact is, the Ukrainians were uh, both, one, able to put up a significant defense. And one of the things that I think that also people haven't sort of given enough credit is that in 2014, when Russia initially invaded Crimea and the issues in the Donbass started to become more significant, Ukraine started to properly modernize and develop its military. It knew that there would be a potential for further conflict. And so it started to prepare for this moment, and it was prepared. Professor, President Joe Biden made a surprise visit to Ukraine over the weekend. He announced an additional half billion dollars worth of U.S. assistance. What should and will other countries do now, do you think, to follow that? Um, well, I think the bigger thing now is is that they're going to still continue to, I think, still provide some degree of weaponry. The big issue right now is, for example, uh, providing planes and fighter jets and things like this. That, I think, is a discussion that's going to continue to happen over the next few months. The bigger thing right now is to see how the, uh, the Leopard tanks, the Abrams tanks, how they perform. Um, as long as Ukraine is, one, using this weaponry well and using it to effect, that's going to encourage probably continued support. The bigger thing that I think that is starting to happen is, is that you're starting to see, especially uh, amongst the Western nations that are supporting Ukraine, a growing sense of a need to start planning for what does rebuilding Ukraine look like. And so there's now starting to be this sense of when do that, that support the military um, of Ukraine as much as possible to help Ukraine liberate Ukrainian territory, but then start to plan what's then the next steps after, because that's going to be a massive undertaking, to say the very least. All right. We've talked about the world coming to to help Ukraine and, and pool resources. And I believe it was another half billion dollars that President Joe Biden in his mm-hmm. recent surprise visit. But the one player that we've not heard much about is China. But there has been, you know, just in the odd chat here and there that perhaps China might be throwing some support behind Russia in the not too distant future. What do we know about that? So at the moment, it appears that the United States um, has, has basically stated that they believe that China is thinking about uh, helping Russia more significantly with regards to lethal aid. This would be a significant step. 
uh, Russia ha- or sorry, China has in general tried to sort of play a, a sort of a supporting role to Russia in one sense, but also tried to maintain a degree of sort of arm's length neutrality because it has a number of deals, particularly with Europe and things like this. Uh, this would be a significant step. It also runs counter to what we heard uh, even at some parts last year where, for example, China and India both uh, at least uh, made clear that they were not happy with how things were going with regards to Russia's war in Ukraine and things like this in the sense that uh, they felt it was a gamble, not worth it. Um, this would be a sort of a big shift, and it would only uh, further, I think, lead to this sort of um, split in the world in which between sort of West and East in many ways, um, as we're starting to get into this moment where talks of that new Cold War are becoming more louder and louder. Um, that said, if China does make a step like that, there are a number of sort of economic trickle-down effects that would be uh, significant in terms of the global economy and things like this. So. Uh, it's one of those to see, is this more of a matter of just kind of warning China, hey, don't get more, or is this a legitimate plan that China is starting to be much more involved? Uh, that's something that we'll have to still wait and see. Appreciate the update this morning, Professor. Thanks so much for your time. Oh, no problem. Thank you for having me on. Thank you. Alexa Drachowicz is an assistant professor of history at Western University and a lecturer at King's University College. According to a new report, Calgary is the third most expensive city to park in in North America. To talk about it, we're joined by the vice president for Alberta with Jones Lang LaSalle, the company that authored this report, Mason Lamb. Good morning to you, Mason. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. This has been an ongoing debate in this city or something that made people shocked since I moved here in 1998. It has always been expensive to park in the city of Calgary. Why is that? Yes, that seems to be the question of the decades, and it's it's a pretty simple answer, actually. It's because there's only 31,592 parking stalls in all of downtown Calgary, whereas there's about 143,204 vehicles that entered into the downtown core in 2022. So that means we're short about 111,612 <laughs> parking stalls, making it a huge gap in supply versus demand. And that's the really obvious answer right there. All right. Well, we can get into it a little bit more. And I'm not sure how far deep you want to dig into this. This struggle, you say, for years and years, uh, this is not a new topic, but we're looking at these new numbers and the new stats, and we seem to be on the losing side again. Um, the, the, the battle between city planners saying we don't want people taking their cars anymore. We want to have people commuting via city transit and uh, those people that have to get to work, they don't have access to city transit. This battle uh, seems to be kind of a stalemate and the losers are Calgarians. Is, is that how you see it? Yeah, to, to, to an extent, I, I would agree that the city transit in terms of accessibility, in particular uh, to trains, it's not necessarily the bus system. I believe our bus system is quite extensive and it's not a bad thing, but trains are just more consistent. You know, when we hit our minus 30s for a week here, it's, it's not nice sometimes standing at a bus stop, whereas it's much easier just to hop on a train knowing that consistency. And I believe with the, with the green line coming down the pipe, uh, it should alleviate some of the issues. In, in particular, the Green Line is going to the right areas now. It's going to the highest growth areas, like it will connect into Seton. And um, for those that are aware, like that's the area where Calgary's growing the most, the most, and in the north. So I think this will actually help um, with the density as well uh, in terms of ensuring that you get the right ridership groups that will take advantage of the Green Line. 
Mason, has this just been, you know, maybe a mistake in terms of how how things have have been built around the city of Calgary? I mean, when we are third in North America, behind only New York and San Francisco, how is that even possible when you look at other big centers in the States? Yeah, you know what? This is one of the things that we had really been considering, and it actually is one of the pros of living in Calgary. And when you look at it, a lot of these uh, other cities, the reason that they're so high is is just due to density and lack of availability and lack of options. And so from that perspective, in Calgary, it's much easier to, to buy a home. We frankly just have very affordable homes here, and it's becoming very easy for those um, looking from other cities, such as even Toronto and Vancouver, and saying, you know what, if I move to Calgary, I can get a home for you know five, $600,000 in a fairly nice community, and um, I, sure, I'll have to commute a bit, but that's not the end of the world. I'll just hop in my car and go. And so from that perspective, when people don't aren't forced necessarily to densify and really change their mindset, they have options here. And again, that's one of the bright lights of Calgary is that we, we do have affordable housing, which makes, you know, part of this issue leads to higher parking because most of the affordable housing is on the periphery of the city. I'm not an economist, uh, Mason, but I understand supply and demand and how that works out. If the supply isn't there, we can't create more stalls. Are there any other options to make parking more affordable in the city of Calgary? You know, great question. I, I think the obvious simple answer here is just to create more supply. However, that hasn't been the mandate of the city um, in terms of the city planning for the past few years, or I shouldn't say past few years, past few decades. It's been a real shift towards densifying the downtown core. And, you know, it, rightly so, because at the end of the day, a lot of the youth, a lot of the young people, especially, um, you know, the urbanization of, of large populaces like Toronto and Vancouver, again, I point to those examples, is because it leads to a lot more um, energy, a lot more, um, a lot more vibrancy in the downtown core and that's really what was one of the biggest complaints of calgary is that we became a commuter city so you can never want get to enjoy the downtown core because it would empty out after work so as a result of actually um, putting more of a focus into densifying that would you would naturally think that that would actually reduce the amount of um, need for parking however with density also comes a lot of the amenities that you need with uh, just you know converting office buildings and building more rental properties you would need access to grocery stores you would need access to schools you need daycares you need access to emergency services you need um, green spaces and blue spaces and most critically you need the right demographic because again going back to what i er, what i said earlier you have to have a more youthful demographic that would take advantage of the density because for a lot of these for a lot of these uh, younger adults they don't necessarily need cars and they're okay with the uber lifestyle and biking and, and, and just using those modes of transportation. But as you get older and you start to have families, you know, does, does it make sense to, to continue Ubering your four-year-old and your five-year-old around and, and not having easy access to schools and daycare? So it's a, it's a bit more of a complex problem than just simply saying, oh, we'll just increase supply. You have to have a right mix of density as well as, you know, the right demographic as well as a, a real cultural mindset shift away from ownership and sometimes just to being okay with renting. And, you know, this is something that it'll just take some time. And we've seen it in Vancouver and we've seen it in Toronto again, um, and to obviously a greater extent in New York. You know, a lot of these people's lives are just going to be renting for most of it. Well, you said it before. It's an ongoing discussion. It's not ending anytime soon, no doubt. Thank you for breaking it down. Appreciate your time. 
appreciate you guys. Thank you very much. Mason Lamb, Vice President for Alberta with Jones Lang LaSalle. And it's super, like, it's circles. It's a circle, a circular thing here, Sue, in that the downtown, they want business, too. Mm-hmm. And I'm not, business-wise, yeah, that, that sucks to pay that. Hopefully your company can offset it, like, or why not move their office? That's not an attractive benefit to have to pay hundreds of dollars a month. But when it comes to anything I can do with my family or, you know, as an individual or a couple, if it's going out for dinner or frequenting a business, if I have to pay through the nose to park downtown, I'm doing it in one of the suburbs. Just look at the economy. Sure. Come on. It's quite amazing, the dollars, really, when you think about it. Calgarians who park downtown on a monthly basis pay, on average, $366 a month. By comparison, drivers in Toronto pay $347. Vancouver, $300. Montreal, $165. So we are literally the third most expensive place to park in North America. Supply and demand, baby. What is your favorite grape? Or should we ask more so, what is your favorite wine? Well, we've got someone here with us to tell us about his love for the sophisticated beverage and why one specific type of wine is highly underrated. Speaking with us now is a raving, in his words, a raving wine and food journalist, Malcolm Jolly. Good morning to the show. Uh, Welcome to the show, Malcolm. Thanks for being with us. How are you? I'm great. And thank you for having me. Good morning to everyone in Calgary. I love that you're a raving wine and food journalist that's fantastic now you uh you did a a piece in the hub all about chardonnay so tell us about your love for chardonnay specifically and why you think it's so underrated well exactly because it's underrated and uh you know if if you're as old as i am you'll remember rodney dangerfield the comic and he got no respect chardonnay gets no respect uh because i think it's so ubiquitous it's become such a, a a general uh white wine that you can find everywhere it's grown everywhere because it can grow everywhere that they that you can grow wine including in canada in the okanagan and in niagara and in in ontario and uh i think it's just overlooked and what's so amazing about it is that it's kind of like a blank canvas that uh chardonnay doesn't isn't a particular doesn't have a like a strong personal identity if you think of a grape as a as like a person it's maybe a little bit bland or or maybe you don't notice it so much so it either reflects the place that it comes from in uh you know in a really particularly strong way or reflects the choices of the winemaker who makes a wine from it and for that reason i just thought well it's time to to say hey you know what chardonnay it's pretty good grape so, so obviously you're on board. So, so what's this going to take, Malcolm? Is is this a marketing mission for you? Because you you seem to think the the, the product is there, the quality is there. Uh, are you going to be touring across the nation? Are you going to you know yell from the highest hilltops? Well, I might have to absolutely. <laughs> and 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 you know, just going back to this idea, like Chardonnay is kind of it's Canada's grape, I think in a way. I, again whether it's in BC or Ontario or even Nova Scotia, people are making really cool, cool climate wines out of Chardonnay. And, uh, you know, so I'm, I, I'm just asking people to give it a second look. You know, next time you're in the store aisles, try a Chardonnay, and particularly, I think, try a Canadian Chardonnay, because we really do make amazing uh, wines in this country. Chardonnay, did it originate in France? 
It did. Uh, there is a village in Burgundy called Chardonnay, and that's that's what, where the grape is, uh, you know, is thought to have originated. So, yeah. So do you think our Canadian Chardonnays can stand up to a French one? Absolutely. Well, no no go. question about it. Um, uh, you know, uh, uh, we, uh, we have some fantastic winemakers in this country, many of whom... Uh, trained uh, in burgundy in in france there are there are canadians in burgundy making wine as well so you know uh i think uh yeah and with global warming uh good or bad uh the level of canadian winemaking is going up and uh you know, the burgundians are having a bit of a struggle so who knows in a hundred years maybe uh the french will come to canada to learn how to make wine champion of, of, of chardonnay uh congratulations <laughs> uh, we're going to give you the medal uh malcolm thank you so much we're going to directly people to mjwinebox.com where they can sign up for your newsletter thank you so much sir fantastic have a great morning you too. That's Malcolm Jolly, a raving wine and food journalist based mostly in Toronto. He describes himself as, and he publishes a sort of wine club newsletter at <laughs> mjwinebox.com.